Hello and welcome to this edition of ITR Voices Tax Talk series, where we offer you insights, discussions and interviews with a range of influential figures across the tax sector. Joining me today is Desmond De Batista, Director of Global Indirect Taxes at Burberry. How are you, Desmond? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. As you can see, the sun is shining outside and I'm in here uh, working, but hey, it's, it's what it's like at the moment. But no, I'm more or less fine. Thank you. Good, good, good to hear. First, we'll tackle um, your experiences with incorporating technology into the tax function. Um, when you first started working with your compliance system, what was the system like? Um, well, to get various systems talking to each other is always a bit of a challenge. Um, worth it at the end, but uh, you know, more for the IT side of things as opposed to kind of the technical side. Um, you expect whatever product you use to take care of the technical aspect is just basically ensure in that when data is extracted, the extractor is looking in the right place and extracting the full amount of the data that is needed. And um, just basically, uh, rather like a sausage machine, um, see what kind of product comes out the other end. Unfortunately, uh, I think it's a truism that no product in the world can make bad data good. So many products rely on the um, completeness and accuracy of the data that, that it's fed. And you know that, that kind of uh, is, is a test for us to, to ensure that our data is, is up to spec and meets all the requirements where we have obligations to report and not just um, VAT uh, or other indirect taxes. I mean, v VAT and, and other indirect taxes are very transactional. So, you know, if there's one thing missing in the data set, it's going to be missing every time you know, that transaction takes place. So it, it does throw in it's a stark lens on, you know, the data requirements and just to make sure that, that our data is, is up to spec. And um, and how did it change um, over time and under your management? Which approach did you take to building the, the systems? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I am I am an engineer by degree, so kind of building things is something that is uh, not necessarily second nature, but something I'm used to. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I had the building blocks in mind uh, and and the work streams and the project management, and it's just basically making sure that everyone is moving forward together and keep an eye on, on the end game and what is the objective of the exercise. The objective of the exercise is to be able to efficiently produce um, batch returns that are accurate and complete. And, you know, as long as we kind of keep our focus on that, then um, we, we normally get to where we need. And and did you face any, any major obstacles along the way? Um, no more than usual, to be honest with you. Um, availability, kind of scope creep. Um, as is in the world today, you know, frequent changes from tax authorities as to their requirements, and they don't tend to be reductions in obligations, they tend to be increases. And, uh, you know, the, the, the time that you're given to incorporate um, those changes into what you're submitting, you know, your tax rate changes are always a good one in Italy, for example, always, uh, always an adventure. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, again, you, you, you know, they're coming and, uh, Thankfully, I have a, a very good pit team to deal with these things, and uh, basically, uh, and 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 also because because it is SAP, um, generally what you need to do is the same whether you're doing it in in Slovenia or whether you're doing it in Spain or whether you're doing it in um, in the UK. A VAT rate change is a VAT rate change, so you know we have 
a checklist to ensure that um, the right people are brought together in good time. So no matter how little time we're given, we are we make a good stab at basically being ready on time. Yeah, of course, compliance first. Well, compliance is built right in the world. Is, yeah, the, the the word is right there. Compliance. There, there is an enforcement thing. So there's not a question of, uh, you know, to choose to. It is generally obligatory. You know, and we have that, you know, fully in mind when these things come out. And um, if you were to give advice to other tax professionals now looking to improve their compliance systems, what would be some key points to address? Keep it simple. Start right. So make sure that your transactions are correctly recorded from beginning to end, because it's one of my my my, my laughingly called my five operating mantras. I have never actually been laminated. Uh, uh, seriously. Um, and uh, the first one is you have to start right, because if you don't start right, then you know the error will expand as you go through the system, and what comes out at the end will be more or less nonsense. And in the context of transactional taxes like VAT, like sales tax, that kind of thing can't be allowed to happen. So, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a AP scenario, starting right would mean that the entity benefiting from the goods or services being purchased is the one raising the PO. So, you know, the local vendor will charge local VAT to local Burberry, local Burberry recovers it in a normal way. If other parties get involved, things will be complicated and uh, ultimately wrong and expose us as taxpayers to potential um, penalties for poor compliance. So starting right is absolutely key in my view. Um, indeed, I think uh, managing the indirect tax demands of the future is something that all tax professionals will be facing. How do you think that will change the in-house compliance systems? Um, well, that's a very good question. I mean, it rather the, the thing is about that changes is they are not consistent across the piece. Clearly, they are becoming more granular. Um, so, you know, ultimately, we collect the data we we are allowed to collect for our transactions, and you know, it, it's just basically being able to be um, supple and flexible in terms of, of our approach. We can't guarantee that uh, even within the EU, the protection of a member state's right to tax is is key, and they're very very um, anti kind of giving any outsiders any um, influence on how you know how they operate their tax system, and you know, that shows um, you know in terms of you know how difficult it is to e protect or get through EU measures um, because they're always going to be a clutch basically say no that's an infringement on our rights you know we don't like it or we don't like it as it is um so you know i suppose the question is not to expect consistency across the piece even things like standard audit files attacks SAFT. um even the standard is a bit of a misnomer because whereas it's standard for the member state it's not standard across the member states they all want their own data in accordance with their requirements and what they think is important to them and you know, and we have to comply with that. But there, there are um, certain kind of uh, protocols that are standard that we can kind of pick out and insert into our process. But they tend to be very small elements because ultimately the, the bigger requirement will be very different in Member State A vis-a-vis -vis Member State B. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that's a, an issue that um, all in-house uh, directors will be will be facing the fragmentation of the of the that landscape that, that you you described. Um, and now moving over to the um, postponed changes to the UK's IR35 rules. What approach did you take to prepare for IR35? Uh, well, we started preparing um, quite early in the phase, and then we were very much heading towards, you know, the 6th of April um, 2020 deadline. Um, so in the event, actually, it was all our all our hard work was uh, kind of put on the back burner. Uh, basically, I again, um, I just looked, uh, starting at the profile of our um, worker base and just see how much of an issue we had. Uh, and also within those non-employees, kind of categorize them between the various types of kind of uh, contractors, call them what you will, um, non-payroll workers, uh, and just made sure that we had processes in place to uh, make sure we captured everyone and took appropriate action in terms of those that, you know, fell into the certain buckets um, to basically ensure that when, you know, D-Day came, we were in a good place. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I got um, legal advice to kind of support me and um, it basically ensured that all our documents were, you know, in line, all our processes were in line, and importantly, communication. One thing that um, came out of uh, HMRC's various pronouncements on this, the word communication figured large in everything. And, you know, in this scenario, I think internal communication between departments at Burberry, but also between Burberry and the workers um, was, was key. We had a project team. The project team, again, was moving forward together. We communicated uh, with our non-employees frequently um, and also, you know, gave us some comfort, but perhaps importantly, gave them some comfort that there were going to be no nasty surprises come 6th of April 2021 now. Yeah. And and we saw some companies take a blanket approach. Um, Why did that Mm -hmm. not work for you? And because it just didn't fit. I mean, it just didn't seem right. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, there, there are going to be various exceptions. I mean, the question is to identify them uh, and to deal them with appropriately such that when, you know, the penny dropped, you were in the right place vis-a-vis what the legislation expects. Okay. And, and then kind of building on that, um, what did you find or what are some of the unique challenges to Burberry or their fashion industry as a whole? Oh, I, I, well, I can't speak for the fashion industry. But you can imagine the, the things like, for example, the creative departments, there are um, various elements that uh, perhaps you and I were not aware of um, that are very specialist. And then the question then became, you know, basically, are we happy to have them as independent contractors or would we need them as employees? So then, the, you know, discussions were had um, both internally and with the relevant people just to make sure that, um, you know, the final solution was um, A, satisfactory for both sides, but be also um, compliant with um, the impending regulations. Although having said that, uh, the regulations are still not out. So hopefully, you know, I'm hoping that uh, 95% of what's there um, will remain in terms of what has been uh, released as the draft and uh, what changes will be um, kind of tinkering at the edges will, which will probably won't apply to us. Of course. And I think something that you've already touched on was the um, the lack of clear guidance from HMRC on IR35. How do you think um, this affected your operations and, and how did you manage that? 
Um, again, you know, you, uh, that situation you have to you have to take a view and you have to take independent advice because ultimately, you know, there are people that are working not just uh, with us but with others, and they can use the findings in, in general terms to apply to the to their clients and say, you know, say this has been found to work. Yeah, I, I don't think we're very different. In, in that respect. But the problem is in the absence of the framework of the legislation, it's very difficult to kind of come to a firm conclusion. What you can do is come to a place where you are comfortable that come what may, um, we will remain compliant. And um, you've mentioned this already, but what was your experience like using the CES tool um, provided mm. by HMRC? And did it work to provide sufficient certainty in assessing employment status? Um, I, I think I'm going to follow the uh, the general feeling here in that uh, the CES tool, there are far too many um, routes through it that basically end up with an inconclusive result. And, you know, that is not helpful. Uh, I, I think HMRC needs to devote uh, more time and resource in um, making sure that you know, the majority of routes through the test tool end up with a conclusion because ultimately you know if you're using that uh, as as a base as a foundation uh, as evidence to support your conclusion then um you know neither side i.e the taxpayer nor hmrc um can afford to rely yeah, on the outcome absolutely Great. Well, finally, um, we'll touch on some regional developments that you're seeing and perhaps expect to see in the future. Are there any um, global trends which you've noticed in your position? Um, one of the key issues that we're, we're hearing is, is this issue of fragmentation, but at the same time, the divergence in, in, in the fact that tax authorities are moving towards more real-time requirements. I think the main global trend is kind of superior to what you described. I think the main global trend is is the requirement for more granular information, transaction by transaction. I, you know, basically, the trick is, you know, where are they going to get that information from? Uh, in a retail environment, you know, certainly places like Czech Republic immediately come to mind. Italy, um, they they want pause information, point of sale information where some places you know your ERP information is sufficient um, so you know it, it, it is easier to extract information from some places um, than others because some places aren't necessarily immediately designed to provide that level of granular data that many tax authorities seek and similarly ERPs although they have the the total truth um, because of the number of transactions, for example, in retail, there may be some batching such that the individuality of the transactions is lost. So you have to go back a stage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so it's basically finding the right place. The data is there. The question is for the purposes of that particular requirement, where is the best place to extract okay. it? Okay, and, and then with, I guess within regions, do you see any differences perhaps between EMEA, APAC, and Latin America? Um. Well, we don't have that great a presence in, in Latin America, so I can't really talk about that. I mean, the one places we have is, is Brazil, and the less said about that, the better. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but the need for granular data is, at the moment, I see it very much as an EU requirement. Middle East have just brought out um, um, VAT in three of the six member states, but even they have started to diverge now. I mean, they, they all came in with the framework agreement, 5% across the board, and then 
Saudi Arabia broke away and saying, no, we're going to take it to 15% um, come the 1st of July. Um, again, uh, I, I, I don't yeah. recall the, the framework agreement in detail, but you know, they have come to the conclusion that they can do that unilaterally and they have done that. Um, the others have said at the moment in Bahrain and UAE that they're not going to follow suit, but you know, We'll see how that, that develops. But at the moment, um, you know, they are very much at the basic report and pay stage, uh, whereas the more developed um, VAT nations, such as you know, the EU, they've been there and they now they want more. So at the moment, I would say in terms of the development of VAT, my sense is that the EU is making the running there. And um, of course, I forgot to mention a big region, North America. And um, what, what have been the key developments over there? Uh, well, I mean, the key development over there, I mean, North America is um, quite different in that in, in the US, of course, uh, sales tax is a state driven thing. Um, and you know, the federal government does, does not interfere. So again, you have 47 taxing authorities there with their own rules, their own rates. So again, you know, that kind of thing lends itself to automation. And of course, uh, the Wayfair case for e-commerce didn't help, um, certainly extended the tax base there as well. So, but, you know, that's been incorporated. So, you know, from that point of view, um, you know, it is, it is, um, we, we think 27 is the problem. Imagine 47. Yeah. And of course, there's Canada as well. I mean, Canada is, is, a, is a hybrid in many cases, in many ways. Um, there is a federal sales tax, which is the GST. Um, each province levies, levies its own and has full jurisdiction over its compliance and also its rates. So, you know, again, we have um, challenges there. I mean, the, the, the provinces change their tax rates with alarming regularity and they're not synchronous. So, you know, again, we just have a, a, an EU scenario where they have come to the conclusion they need to change their rates um, generally up. Uh, but, you know, we, we need to comply again if the PIT team is available so we can get it done quite quickly. The thing is with, with Canada, of course, the other hybrid is that to um, the, to the shopper, to the to, to the customer, it looks very much like um, the US in that the sales tax is added to um, the, what I call the hanger yeah. price, uh, which you see, you know, when you pick it up off the hanger and take it to pause. Uh, and then at the till, they add the sales tax there. So, you know, the, the hanger price is not the big, not the end of the story for Canadian customers. However, on the back end, it's accounted for like VAT in the sense that you can offset what you incur against what you collect and pay over the net, um, which, which in, in the US is not the case. So, you know, I mean, it's... Um, but I, I suppose that's what keeps my job interesting is the fact that that there, that there is you know that fundamentally the rules of VAT don't necessarily change. It's the manner of compliance that um, basically will change from member state to member state to you know other taxing authority like Canada. Um, so you know it's just a question of keeping. Uh, on top of all the changes, both technical, but also um, in terms of rate changes, just to make sure that you know, we remain compliant at all times. Of course. And, and how are you seeing behavior from tax authorities change and looking mm. further afield after COVID-19? Um, how yeah. do you expect that uh, the, the behavior to change further? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting question. That is a very interesting question. I mean, clearly at the moment, um, tax authorities have been directed by governments to basically show some compassion in terms of, uh, you know, how they approach taxpayers at the moment and, uh, you know, whether and how that will continue in the new normal, that is a very interesting question. And I, I know, I, what I would say is that um, many governments are um, shelling out a lot of money to support businesses and individuals through the COVID-19 crisis. At some stage, it would not be unreasonable to conclude that they would want to recover some of that money. Uh, would that be in terms of higher rates, tougher compliance, or a combination of both remains to be seen. And I don't think it'll be a cliff edge scenario. I think it'll be a transition to that. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think there needs to be some payback and, you know, they would need to start collecting significant amount of money again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that'll be something I think everyone will be watching and uh, see how that develops. That's everything for today. Thank you all for listening to ITR's podcast. A special thank you to Desmond for joining us. You can listen again to this podcast or other episodes anytime by going to the ITR website and finding the podcast tab. Thank you very much and goodbye.